Just a note, this episode of Left Behind contains detailed accounts of war, combat, and war crimes that may not be suitable for all audiences. The Cavite Peninsula juts into Manila Bay, about seven miles southwest of Manila. The long, thin peninsula creates a natural deep water harbor, making it the perfect spot for a shipyard since at least the 1600s, when Spain ruled the Philippines. By December 1941, the Cavite Navy Yard was the U.S. Navy's only ship repair facility in the Western Pacific. In the late morning of December 10, 1941, Private Brooks Miller, a 21-year-old California native and a three-year veteran of the U.S. Marines, sat in Battery F on Cavite Naval Yard's Guadalupe Pier, watching Filipino workers digging an air raid trench elsewhere in the yard. Nearby sat another private, Louis Sontag, a 23-year-old Marine with an oval face, cleft chin, and questioning, almost curious eyes. It was two full days since the Japanese first attacked the Philippines. Two full days since Cavite's commander looked to the morning skies and announced, the Japs ought to be here any minute. But Japanese aircraft had never arrived, at Cavite at least. Airfields all over Luzon, the Philippines' largest island, had been bombed to oblivion, but the Cavite Navy Yard remained untouched. Ships, apparently, were not Japan's primary target. So Privates Miller and Sontag, and the 700 other U.S. Marines, as well as thousands of Navy personnel and civilians working in and stationed at the yard, had become somewhat complacent. The Marines' main job was to man the yard's artillery batteries. Artillery batteries are groupings of heavy artillery, such as cannons or rockets or even howitzers. Cavite was defended by several batteries, some inside and some outside the yard. The batteries outside the yard had anti-aircraft weapons. Those in the yard, such as Battery F on Guadalupe Pier, had 50 caliber machine guns. Just before noon, the Marines of Battery F, including Miller and Sontag, heard aircraft engines and looked skyward to see more than 50 aircraft in three V formations approaching. Their first response was relief. Finally, the Army's got the replacements coming. Look at those leaflets coming down. But something was wrong. The Marines noticed a dogfight under the formation. Then the yard's air raid sounded. Sontag Miller and several other Marines, searching the skies and roused by the siren, yelled out almost in unison, Leaflets, hell, they're bombs! The first bombs hit the water of Manila Bay, but were soon followed by more accurate bombs that hit the ground, rocking the naval base. Planes crisscrossed the yard, raining down bombs that exploded buildings and started fires. Unfortunately, Battery F's machine guns had little effect on the enemy planes. The battery's frustrated rangefinder called out. They're above the range of our guns, Lieutenant. Check again, Private. Same, sir. They're flying above 21,000 feet. Our guns only reach 15,000. Damn. Damn it, fire anyway. So Sontag Miller and their fellow Marines fired their 50 caliber machine guns at the Japanese bombers, while Miller murmured that a toy pistol would damage those planes as much as we are. The company's captain soon ordered them to cease fire since the bullets did nothing against the planes. Across the naval yard, off-duty marines lined up to get ammunition so they could fire on any Japanese Zeros strafing the yard. The lined-up marines dove for cover when bombs dropped, then got back in line until another bomb sent them scrambling. Bombs dropped for two hours. Out-of-control fires raged, destroying everything in their paths. The power plant, repair ships, dispensary, barracks, ammunition, and more. Civilians and sailors ran to Guadalupe Pier, trying to escape the bombs. When the last Japanese planes left, 
some 1,500 servicemen and civilians were dead or wounded. But near Guadalupe Pier, explosions continued to rock the ground. The battery's lieutenant and captain surveyed the situation. It's the torpedo warehouse, sir. The fires are exploding the warheads. And the fires have now trapped us all on this damn pier. Surrounded by water on three sides and blocked by fire and exploding torpedoes on the fourth, the Marines, civilians, and sailors on Guadalupe Pier were in dire straits. Thinking quickly, the captain shouted orders. All right, you there, Miller, grab that hammer. Sontag, start gathering wood. Rip up the dock if you have to. We're making rafts to get these people off this pier. This is Left Behind. Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. Today's episode introduces a type of character I haven't yet covered in Left Behind, women. Specifically, the women left behind when the men in their lives went to war. Today, we'll follow two young Marines, their POW experiences, and glimpse what life was like for their women back home. Brooks Miller was born on May 1, 1920 in California to John and Rena Miller. His father was a prominent attorney and a World War I vet. Brooks grew up in Los Angeles with two sisters, one older and one younger than him. In junior high, he was part of the drama club. Sometime in the early 1930s, his parents divorced, and in 1934, his mother remarried and moved Brooks across the country to Norfolk, Virginia. In March 1939, 18-year-old Brooks enlisted as a private in the U.S. Marine Corps. Private Miller was stationed at the Naval Operating Base in Norfolk, Virginia until January 1941, when he was transferred to Mare Island Naval Shipyard on the San Francisco Bay in California. About seven months later, on August 4, 1941, Private First Class Brooks Miller married Marie Madsen in Carson City, Nevada. Brooks was 21 years old. Marie was 34. Marie Madsen was a graduate of Fresno State College and taught elementary school in Delray, California, which is near Fresno and about three hours southeast of Mare Island. The couple honeymooned in Northern California, and I have so many questions about their marriage. First of all, how did they meet? They lived and worked about three hours away from each other, so I'm curious how and when they could have run across each other. Perhaps they knew each other from when Brooks lived in California before. But their age difference and geographical distance at that time just doesn't make sense for them to have known each other previously. Also, did they elope? And if so, how long had they known each other? The fact they married in Nevada could suggest an elopement. Carson City is a good three and a half hour car ride away from Mare Island where Brooks was stationed. And then there's the fact that Marie was 13 years older than Brooks. That's an unusual age spread for the woman being older, especially back in the 1940s. Well, despite all my questions, Brooks and Marie's wedding announcement appeared more than a month later on September 11, 1941, in Marie Madsen's hometown newspaper. By the time of this announcement, Private First Class Miller was likely on his way to the Philippines. He was stationed at Cavite Navy Yard, just south of Manila, by the end of October 1941. The Marines there would have been training, preparing for war, and to defend Cavite from enemy attack. 
While Private Miller was toiling away in the hot Philippine sun, Marie Miller's friends threw her a bridal shower. A Fresno newspaper article with the title, Mrs. Brooks Miller is complimented by Miss Jean Coleman, described the party. There were 24 guests at the shower, and they played games, presented shower gifts, and were served refreshments. The complete guest list appears in the newspaper article, which you can find on my website. The link is in the show description. While teenage Brooks Miller crossed the country from California to Virginia, a young Louis Edward Sontag Jr. stayed put in the Midwest. Louis was born October 16, 1917 in Hamilton, Ohio to Helen and Louis Sontag. Louis Sr. worked at a millinery shop. That's a fancy word for hat shop. Louis Sr. was born in Scotland to Russian-born and perhaps Jewish parents. Helen was born in New York to Jewish immigrants from Hungary. By the time Louis Jr. was 12, the family had moved about four hours north to Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood on the shores of Lake Michigan. Louis Sr. continued working at a millinery shop. Louis Jr.'s parents divorced in the early 1930s, just as Brooks Miller's had. His father remarried and moved to Indiana, but Louis remained in Chicago with his mother, Helen. He graduated from Hyde Park High School around 1935 and reportedly went to college, but must have dropped out because in September 1939, Lewis Jr. enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and was sent almost immediately to the Marine Barracks at Mare Island Navy Yard. He spent a couple years at Mare Island and at the Marine Base in San Diego, and then in November 1940, he was transferred across the Pacific to join the 4th Marine stationed in Shanghai. You may recall that Major Frank Pysik from Episode 1 was also with the 4th Marines in Shanghai. Sontag would remain in Shanghai for a full year until mid-November 1941, when, in anticipation of hostilities with Japan, the 4th Marines were shipped to the Philippines. Sontag was assigned to the 1st Separate Marine Battalion, whose primary objective was to defend the Cavite Navy Yard. Private Brooks Miller, also part of the 4th Marine's 1st Separate Battalion, was already at Cavite when Sontag arrived. Japan first attacked the Philippines on December 8, 1941. During the first few days, Japanese planes focused on U.S. Air Force targets, and they all but eradicated the U.S. Air Force presence in the Philippines. The U.S. was left with airstrips full of bomb craters, destroyed airfield buildings, and mere remnants of their once strong aircraft fleet. With the U.S. Air Force crippled, Japan next turned its sights on the United States naval presence in the Philippines. So, two full days of war would pass before Miller and Sontag saw action at the Navy Yard. But when it came, it came with a vengeance. Trapped by fire and explosions on the Guadalupe Pier at Cavite Naval Yard, Sontag Miller and their Marine brothers tore up dock planks to build makeshift rafts. They successfully evacuated all the trapped civilians, sailors, and Marines, as well as ammunition and weapons. They then spent the night about 15 miles north of the Navy Yard. The next day, Marines returned to the yard to patrol for looters and fires, and to bury the dead. The Marines used shovels to bury 250 bodies in a trench dug by a bulldozer. They set up filled kitchens to feed civilians and servicemen, and they guarded fuel at the gas stations on the road to Manila to ensure enough for military use. In the days before Christmas 1941, Sontag and Miller and the rest of their Marine detachment began transferring from Cavite to Maravellas, an American base on the southern tip of the Bataan Peninsula. Japanese forces had overrun Luzon Island so quickly that General Douglas MacArthur ordered all U.S. and Filipino military to withdraw to Bataan. 
While Sontag and Miller were preparing to evacuate to Bataan, their family back home may have tuned in their radio on Christmas Eve to hear President Franklin Delano Roosevelt share a Christmas message to a nation just beginning to realize the reality of war. How can we light our trees? How can we give our gifts? How can we meet and worship with love and with uplifted spirit and heart in a world at war, a world of fighting and suffering and death? These are natural, inevitable questions. And even as we ask these questions, we know the answer. There is another preparation demanded of this nation beyond and beside the preparation of weapons and materials of war. There is demanded also of us the preparation of our hearts, the arming of our hearts. And when we make ready our hearts, for the labor and the suffering and the ultimate victory which lie ahead, then we observe Christmas Day with all of its memories and all of its meanings as we should. last convoy out of Cavite on Christmas Day halted near a small town where they saw Filipinos cooking donuts alongside the road. Villagers had salvaged the precious flour from a sinking ship in Manila Harbor and the Marines stopped to join the holiday feast. While I have no idea if Miller or Sontag were part of that convoy, they undoubtedly arrived at Maravellas by Christmas night. It was a dreary Christmas, which one Marine described as, Probably the worst Christmas I ever spent. No food, Nip airplanes bombing over the bay and flying over our area all day long. No damned fun. Despite these Christmas travels and trials, Private Miller was able to send his wife Christmas greetings via cablegram, a fact that was duly reported in her local Fresno newspaper. After a few days at Marivellis, Miller, Sontag, and the 4th Marines transferred two miles across a channel in Manila Bay to Corregidor Island an island military base positioned to defend Manila Bay from attack. They first took up residence in barracks, but within a few days were transferred to field positions, which for Brooks and Sontag's battalion was the beach. They immediately began setting up beach defenses on the island, which was no small feat considering they had up to 4,000 yards of beach to defend with only 350 men. For perspective, that's like 40 football fields end to end with eight or nine Marines defending the length of each football field. The Marines built barbed wire barriers, tank traps, bunkers, and trench systems. They worked all day, stopping for only two meals because food was being rationed, only taking breaks when Japanese forces were shelling or bombing the island, which they did quite regularly, and when it was too dark to work. From January through early March 1942, Corregidor Island was under constant siege by Japanese forces. The air attacks and shelling intensified after U.S. forces still on Bataan surrendered in early April. Food became scarcer and scarcer for the Americans and Filipinos on Corregidor Island. On May 6, 1942, Japanese ground forces landed on Corregidor Island. As part of the island's beach defenses, Brooks and Sontag would have been part of the first defense. Although the initial Japanese landings were not in the part of the island where Brooks and Miller's company was defending. 
The invading army quickly captured Corregidor Island, and Private Sontag and Corporal Miller became prisoners of war. Back home in California, Mrs. Marie Miller soon received word from the armed forces that her husband was officially classified as missing in action. Marie had recently resigned as a teacher at Prairie Elementary School in her hometown of Del Rey and moved about three hours north to Berkeley, California to teach at an elementary school there. Corporal Miller and Private Sontag were moving as well, being forced march and trained some 70 miles north to the Cabanatuan POW camps with the other American POWs captured on Corregidor. Neither man would remain there long, however. Almost immediately after arriving at Cabanatuan, the POWs set up an underground mail system that, if I understand correctly, allowed POWs to get money from civilian internees and other influential people in Manila. The POWs would use the money to buy food from Filipino vendors near the Cabanatuan camps. My great-grandfather, Alma Salm, knew Sontag at the Cabanatuan POW camps. Here's Salm's recollection of Sontag, read now by Salm's great-grandson. One of the camp truck drivers, Sergeant Sontag, U.S. Marine Corps, a very likable fellow, was one of our contact men. He was caught one day, searched, and letters were found on him. He was severely beaten and given life imprisonment. That was in June 1942. Sontag had been a POW for all of two months, if that. Fortunately, perhaps miraculously, and definitely quite unusually, Sontag's sentence wasn't carried out. A couple months later, Almasan was transferred to a different camp at Cabanatuan, where he ran into Sontag. The young Marine had been freed, his life sentence seemingly commuted. In July 1942, the Japanese opened the Nichols Field Work Camp. Nichols Field was, before surrender, an American airbase just south of Manila in the town of Pasay. The Japanese had plans to enlarge the airfield and turn it into the Pacific's largest airbase, and they used American POWs to build the runway by hand. Corporal Brooks Miller was likely among the first or second group of POWs sent to Nichols Field although I can't find records of transfers in and out of that camp. Miller and the other POWs were housed in the former Passe Elementary School, about one mile from the airfield. They slept on classroom floors with their few personal belongings as pillows and thin bamboo mats for beds. Food, mainly rice and water, was extremely limited. Each day, after being made to line up and counted by the guards, the POWs were marched the mile from the elementary school to Nichols Field, where they used shovels and pickaxes to level hills for the runway. They dug out the base of a hill until the dirt collapsed, and hopefully it wouldn't bury them alive. Then they loaded the dirt and rocks into small mining carts and hauled it away. It was exhausting, backbreaking work. And since summer is the rainy season in the Philippines, the POWs were working in downpouring rain, sometimes in water and mud up to their knees, while wearing scanty rags for clothing and required to meet a daily quota or endure beatings. My great-grandfather referred to it as a inhumane hellhole of a work camp. Since few POWs understood the Japanese language, they made up nicknames for their Japanese guards. Among the Nichols Field camp leadership were Cherry Blossom and White Angel, White Angel was probably Lieutenant Kita Emoto, who was the camp commander. I don't know Cherry Blossom's actual name. At night, the POWs were marched the mile back to Pasay Elementary School, where they were again lined up and counted by the guards. At bedtime, Cherry Blossom would again count the POWs, who were supposed to be in their beds at the time. 
But one night in fall 1942, Elmasam wrote, something went wrong. One night, Cherry Blossom on his routine checkup found one man short, and then all hell broke loose. A Marine by the name of Miller, a corporal I believe, had reached the limit of his endurance. Under cover of darkness, he escaped over the high back fence where it formed a conjuncture with the roof of a small rear toilet only a few feet from the main prison building. Cherry Blossom ranted and railed and cursed and slapped the men around for three days. Then the White Angel charged in and loosened a torrent of outbursts on us. The escape of a prisoner always gives the Jap in command a black mark with his superiors. Corporal Miller's escape was broadcast to Japanese patrols in and around Manila. By this time, all white civilians had been put into internment camps, so a white American man stood out in a community made up solely of Asians and Filipinos. Corporal Miller's skin color meant he had little chance of successful escape, even if he connected with Filipino allies. And so it happened that three days later, Corporal Miller was spotted in a Karamata, a light two-wheeled carriage, on Jones Street Bridge in the middle of Manila. Japanese sentries quickly identified the white man as the missing Marine and took him into custody. Almasan recorded that Corporal Miller was at least afforded a court-martial, even if it was an unfair one. He was sentenced to death. Back at Nichols Field, White Angel had the remaining POWs assemble in formation. After a verbal lashing, he shared some words about Corporal Miller, which my great-grandfather recorded in his memoir as, I was so sorry to kill such a brave man. Yes, I hated to cut off his head with my sword, but he died like true fashion. But I gave him so good funeral. So after they threw dirt on him, I put some beautiful flowers on his grave. The entire Nichols Field work detail was then marched by a grave purported to be Miller's. Reports say the Japanese guards beat him severely, beheaded him, and possibly shot him. None of the POWs actually witnessed the execution, but Miller was never definitely seen or heard from since that date. Now, something to note. Howard Humphreys, a Marine private, swore in 1944 that the POWs were marched by Miller's grave on October 5, 1942. And that date has become Miller's official death date. However, Salm didn't arrive at Nicholsfield until November or December 1942, a good one to two months after Miller's supposed death date. And Salm's account makes it sound like he was at Nicholsfield when Miller escaped and was killed. So that would mean Miller escaped later than October 1942. One possible explanation is that Humphreys misremembered when Miller escaped. More than a year had passed before Humphreys' report was created. Perhaps the exact date got mixed up. It's also possible that Psalm is recounting a story he heard once he arrived at Nicholsfield, although he does use the word us to describe White Angel's reaction, making it sound like Psalm endured the verbal tongue lashing when Miller escaped. Well, regardless of the actual date of death, Miller's status was non-recoverable, meaning his body could not be found or identified at war's end. He was 22 years old. During the time that Brooks Miller and Alma Somme were at Nichols Field, Louis Sontag was taking a very different journey. On November 11, 1942, about a year after he'd arrived in the Philippines from Shanghai, Private Sontag was loaded onto the Japanese ship Nagato Maru with 1,600 other POWs. 
They arrived at Moji, Japan a couple weeks later, and on November 27, 1942, Sontag and 400 of his fellow POW travelers arrived at the Yodogawa branch camp near Osaka, Japan. Sontag was an acting clerk for the group of POWs and kept a diary of their entry into Yodogawa. Upon arrival in Osaka, we were very cold, disgruntled, and hungry lot of men who were compelled to stand by and listen to instructions in Japanese commands. Their commands are much the same as ours, strictly designed for military efficiency and carrying the same importance. We all then swore an oath that we would not attempt to escape, and that to the best of our ability, we would faithfully discharge our new duties. He referred to their Japanese supervisor as young and likable, and to the camp interpreter as a nice fellow who tried to help the POWs. Definitely a contrast to Corporal Miller's guards at Nichols Field. There are so many horror stories of Japanese guards at the POW camps that I do appreciate hearing about something akin to kindness. Our quarters are large and very airy. They're in the remote corner of a barrel factory. Comfort during the daylight hours is very difficult due to the cold. Our bodies can't stand this weather on the diet we have been forced to subsist on. The average November temperature in this area ranges from 49 to 63 degrees Fahrenheit. That doesn't seem too cold to me, but they were coming from the Philippines where the average temperature was 78 to 88 degrees, so perhaps that had something to do with how cold it seemed to the POWs. Also, the men were malnourished and starving. They had little or no body fat, and feeling cold is a byproduct of starvation. For the next two years, Sergeant Sontag and the other Yodogawa POWs worked in steel plants smelting, casting molds, and working on forges and lathes. They also repaired electronics, manufactured nuts, bolts, and steel helmets, and worked with armor plating. In other words, Japan was using their POW force to make things to fight the war. During this time, he had very little contact with his family. His mother received a few notes from him, and he received a care package from his mother. And then, in February 1945, Sontag received a Red Cross form from his wife in Shanghai. Wait, what? His wife? I was so surprised when I discovered this, since all of Sontag's military records list his mother as next of kin. That's usually a sign that the POW was single. That Red Cross card read, Darling Lewis, how are you? Darling, I am very worried about you. Let me know about yourself. I am well. Have you news from mother? Love always, your wife. Nina Sontag. Nina Merich Sontag was born to Russian and likely Jewish parents in April 1921 in Harbin, a city in northeast China and very near the Russian border. Harbin has long had a Russian population and influence, especially after the Russian Revolution in 1917 when some 100,000 Russian refugees fled to Harbin. The city has a sizable Jewish population, many of whom fled to Shanghai and other China cities when Japan invaded the region in 1931. This was because of Japan's ties to anti-Semitic fascists. So I think it's quite possible that Nina Merrick Sontag was a Russian Jewish refugee from Harbin who fled to Shanghai. I can't find record of a marriage, but I believe that Private Louis Sontag likely met and married Nina Merrick in Shanghai while he was stationed there from 1940 to 1941. Sadly though, her darling Louis was not well. He died on April 21, 1945, two months after receiving her note. 
His cause of death was pulmonary <laughs> tuberculosis, a bacterial lung infection that is especially dangerous when someone's immune system is too weakened to fight the infection, such as people who are worked too hard while being starved. Starvation was an extremely common cause of death at Yodogawa. Louis Sontag was 28 years old. After the war, Nina Merrick Sontag immigrated to Brazil and eventually married an American, relocated to California, and became a U.S. citizen. I have her Brazil visa card with a stunning picture of her on my website. She died in 2007 at age 86. So back in California, and a few years earlier, Mrs. Marie Miller received word from the Red Cross in March 1943 that her husband, Corporal Brooks Miller, was a POW of the Japanese. By this time, Brooks had been dead, killed at Nichols Field some three to six months previously. Two years later, in January 1945, the war had turned. The POWs were beginning to come home. Marie Miller was working for the Red Cross, distributing questionnaires to returning POWs to find out what happened to men reported missing in action. She still had not received word that Brooks was dead. Seven months later, in July 1945, Marie became the Red Cross field director at Fort Ord near Monterey, California. A newspaper article informed readers that Her husband, Corporal Brooks Miller of the Army, was taken prisoner by the Japanese after the fall of Corregidor. In other words, she still didn't know Brooks had died more than two and a half years earlier. But she would eventually find out, although I haven't been able to discover exactly when the news reached her. In August 1946, 38-year-old Marie Madsen Miller married a World War II vet who served in the Pacific Theater. She died in Maryland in March 1972 at age 65. From what I can tell, she never had children with either Brooks or her second husband. After World War II's dust cleared, Japanese officials, commanders, and even individual guards faced trial for war crimes committed against Allied POWs. On October 16, 1947, former Japanese Lieutenant Kita Emoto, known to the POWs as White Angel, went on trial at Yokohama, Japan with four other officers for war crimes committed at Nichols Field during World War II. Emoto was specifically charged with beheading Corporal Brooks Miller. The officers were charged with other deaths, torture, and war crimes, such as forcing massive amounts of water down a POW's throat, then jumping on the man's stomach. One U.S. newspaper reported, The list of the five officers' victims takes up almost both sides of a sheet of paper when single-spaced. Six weeks later, U.S. newspapers reported that all five Japanese officers were convicted of war crimes against American POWs. The crimes against POWs were horrific and inhumane, but they weren't limited to American servicemen. Filipino servicemen suffered greatly at the hands of their Japanese captors. And next week, I'll tell you the story of one of these brave Filipino servicemen who faced down invading Japanese ground forces as part of the last horse-mounted cavalry in the U.S. Army. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures and maps of Brooks Miller and Louis Sontag and their story on my website. The links are in the show description. You'll also find the list of sources I use to tell their life stories. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. 
Reviews help others find this podcast so I can continue sharing these great stories. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Reenactments are based on historical research and records, although some creative liberty is taken. I'll be back next week with Japan's ground invasion of the Philippines. Music